So if I think back 10, 15 years, most cyber attacks were happening just on the keyboard, like somebody in their basement with a funny haircut, maybe hacking through firewalls and stuff like that, like from the movies, right? But these days, it's all about organized crime and exploiting the vulnerable and trying to make money out of it. Today, we are far less likely to be a victim of a violent crime or even a home invasion than we were a quarter century ago. It's one of the ways in which the world is better than ever. We are far safer today, but one area where we are vulnerable is our identity. Cyber thieves are scheming 24-7 to tap into your computers and devices, steal your credit card numbers, and even manipulate your thoughts. As the Internet of Things continues to grow and more devices connect to the Internet, our vulnerability grows. Today's guest is cybersecurity expert Max Heinemeyer. He is here to talk about how the innovative artificial intelligence solutions his company Darktrace has developed and how they can keep you and your organization safe from these intrusions. Max, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks very much, Don. Your title is Director of Threat Hunting for Darktrace. What do you actually do? Well, I love my title. I picked it myself and it's always a good icebreaker. So what I actually do at Darktrace is I'm mentoring a team of 30 threat analysts in Cambridge here in the UK when I'm in the office, but I'm traveling quite a bit, talking to all our big and strategic clients, having the technical teams and hunting threats. You can imagine it like me sitting in front of a computer and hunting the bad guys, trying to find the hackers in networks, not just in our network, of course, but in networks of customers, atomic power plants water treatment facilities, huge global banks, internet service providers, you name it, we're there. So you, you are uh, very important to their continuity, their business continuity. How did you get started in this industry? I got started by uh, computer gaming. I've always been an avid gamer. I love computer games, just grew up with it. I'm from rural Germany, so there's not much to do except for playing computer games and being out with your friends. And I don't know if you remember, but there used to be a thing called LAN parties. When you grab your computer, you meet your friends physically, you connect it all up and you play computer games together. And of course, you need somebody who can do the connecting it up and making the network work. And at some point, I realized, well, this is kind of fun and interesting. If we want to play together, you have to make it work. But then it's not just about playing together, but you realize at a certain point you can get into your friend's computers and see what kind of emails they're writing and maybe crash their computer when they're winning a game against you. So I dabbled into that a bit and reverse engineering computer games and cheat software. Discovered on the internet, there's forums, like user groups for that kind of stuff and got really interested. And when I get curious about something, I develop a passion for it. So I did this for reverse engineering computer games and cheat software and these kind of things. And that's how I dabbled into the whole security scene. The term hacker has a, a negative connotation, but it sounds like you can, you can use it for good or for bad. The term hacker really just means that somebody's using technology in a creative way. But these days, when we hear hacker, we think about people with hoodies and black masks and you know, gloves in front of a computer. And that's absolutely not what a hacker is all about if we think about the terminology. It's just somebody who likes tinkering with things and getting innovations going. And this is the kind of mindset I like to apply to security as well. There's great biohackers who implant chips into their fingers to get a new sense for feeling electromagnetic waves, for example. So hacking is just a very general word, really. And I agree, it's been connotated quite negatively in the recent years because cybersecurity has become such a big thing and cyber crimes are happening everywhere. But the original term hacker just means using tech in a creative way. When you think about individual vulnerability, 
in, in your experience, where are people most exposed to have their data hacked or identity stolen? It's a really good question. And these days, I would say almost anywhere because cyber criminals are very innovative and they just target any weakness they can find. These days, it's probably mostly when I think about individuals via phishing and social engineering, what we call it. So if I think back 10, 15 years, most cyber attacks were happening just on the keyboard, like somebody in their basement with a funny haircut, maybe hacking through firewalls and stuff like that, like from the movies, right? But these days, it's all about organized crime and exploiting the vulnerable and trying to make money out of it. So it's very often banking trojans. So I infect your computer with a phishing email. So you think it's an invoice from Amazon or any other company. You click on it and that's it. That moment in time, there's something running on your computer trying to get your banking details. Or more recently, since 2017, we're not just seeing banking trojans trying to steal your banking details, but also cryptocurrency miners. So your computer gets infected and a tiny bit of your energy that you use when you run your computer is converted into cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Monero, Ethereum, going straight into the criminal's wallet. He can just exchange it for digital goods or just back into real value for your money. Who are these bad guys? You described the bad haircut in the basement. Well, that's not the case anymore. Who are they now? Anybody and everybody. It's really interesting. It has very much diversified. So the attackers have spread out. It's not just the cliche hacker in the basement with a mohawk, but the barriers to entry to become a hacker have been lowered tremendously because of various things. If you want to dabble into ethical hacking or hacking in general, you can just go to the internet and start Googling. And Within a week, if you spend a bit of time and have a tiny amount of technical understanding, you can become very pro in starting attacks. I don't recommend this to anybody, of course. Not going to jail is big deterrent, obviously. But it's very easy to get into it these days. And it can be extremely profitable because there's a lot of opportunities out there to do this. So you're asking, who's the attackers these days? And we see a lot of financially motivated crime groups. We see more and more nation-state attackers who look into espionage, for example, or have very geopolitically driven agendas. But there's also cyber mercenaries. So companies who are thinly veiled and say we provide surveillance software, but really they're selling hacking tools. And anybody can buy these. So if you're a government, a very poor government, maybe, maybe third world government, and you don't have the cyber muscle to attack your neighboring countries, you can just purchase these services. What are two or three things that individuals should be doing to protect themselves? There's a few things, and it's not difficult. One that always comes up, I suppose, is choose good passwords. And that's a very generic hint, right? But I've got a succinct tip for you listeners. And that is... Don't try to choose a password that's very complex and you can't remember because then you just forget it and you have to reset it, whatever. What you want to do is length beats complexity. So what you want to do is pick a bunch of words and add in a few numbers. So when I'm sitting here and see you, I would pick as a good strong password phrase, I would pick headphones 33, light window 21. And I would maybe put a typo in light and drop the H in there. And this password could not be broken by anybody in years and years to come. And it's not going to appear in any dictionary list that the hackers are going to use. And it's kind of easy to remember because it's not completely random, but still long enough. So passphrases are a really good thing. That's tip number one, strong passwords. Tip number two is use multi-factor authentications. Passwords can still be stolen. Maybe you choose a passphrase that's repeated or somebody finds it written down somewhere. So what you want to do is get the second factor authentication, which means... When you log in somewhere, you want to get a second notification onto your smartphone saying, do you really want to log in? 
or you get a code via SMS on your phone saying, enter this code in the website. And of course, you don't need to do this everywhere. The more you do, the better. But certainly for your important things like your Gmail account, where you reset everything else to, or your corporate account or your online banking account, for example. So one or two more quick takeaways besides strong passwords and multi-factor authentication. One is keeping up to date. I know everybody's annoyed by the pop-ups appearing on Windows and anything else saying, you need to update the software, but it's really important to just click on it, take the five minutes a week, grab coffee or water and go through the update process. It's fine. And the last thing I have for everybody out there is just be aware. The cyber world is a scary place these days out there. There's a lot of attackers, as we've just established. So if you've got the slightest doubt about an email that's coming in and you hadn't requested it, or maybe an invoice, which you're not expecting, or a text message from a friend that hasn't contacted you in years and looks slightly dodge, just ask somebody who's unfamiliar with cybersecurity or just ignore it or be on the lookout. Just be aware is what I'm saying, basically. The internet has changed quite a bit in the last several years. What has increased individual vulnerability? What has increased is that the internet has become a much broader and bigger space. I remember I talked about computer gaming a bit ago. And the early 2000s, when we played online, it was all about meeting friends from the UK. I was still living in Germany back then, or people from Western Europe and the occasional American. And then end of the 2000s, 2010, 2011, all of a sudden, Russians came into the online gaming market and a lot of Chinese people and Indian people. So now it's truly a global internet. So everybody's got access, which means we're in a bare knuckle fight, if you think about cybercrime, with anybody and everybody out there. So the internet becoming more connected out there and more people getting access also means anybody can start attacking. So the individual vulnerability has increased because there's many, many more threat actors out there. They're using similar tactics, phishing emails, trying to get your credit card details, but just the amount of attacks has grown tremendously because we've seen an influx of players, not just criminals, but in general, from all countries all over the world. Billions of devices as well, and there will be, that, that will increase with the Internet of Things. Can you talk about the potential vulnerability there, what you're thinking about you know, three years from now, five years from now, when we you know, hit the tens of billions of devices that are, that are connected? internet. Absolutely. There's one big word that's going to overshadow all of this, which is complexity. So what more devices are introducing is more complexity. And just to take one step back from this, if I look at the challenges we face currently in cybersecurity, it's our own complexity. The attackers have to find one way in and get into your system once and exfiltrate the data once. But on the defending side, we have to go through hundreds of alerts every day. We install all these systems we have never seen before. We see attacks we have never seen before. Just the organizational complexity is incredible. So we're fighting ourselves in a way. And that is now. We got quite good at defending maybe corporate networks, so laptops, servers, workstations. Now we're in a world where you're looking at me and you're facing your convertible there. I think it's maybe a tablet even. I've got my smartphone here connected to the local Wi-Fi. At home, I've got two Raspberry Pis, and there's a CCTV camera I can see here, which is also connected to our internal system. So I just named a few things on top of what I'm seeing, here, right? And we haven't even touched upon the cloud, software service. So all of these things increase complexity manifold. And we just figured out how to secure basic things like laptops and servers. And now all these things flux in. What we did in the past is always try to define what bad looks like. This is what an attack looks like and start looking for it. This doesn't work anymore because of complexity. So what we have to do is what we at DarkTrace did actually, turn this on its head. We say we have to use AI, for example, machine learning, 
to understand what normal means, how my computer behaves, how your laptop behaves, how the CCTV camera behaves, because we cannot predefine this anymore. It's just too complex and too much. So we use AI to do this, to understand these patterns of life. And as soon as somewhere there's a big deviation from the norm, your convertible sends a lot of data to a server in Germany you have never touched before. That's going to ring some alarm bells, right? Even if I don't predefine this, we're going to see this because it's out of the norm what normally happens. And it doesn't matter if it's a convertible or a CCTV camera or water treatment plant or billions of the IoT devices that's going to be out there in a few years. As soon as we see that, we can react to it. And this is really where I see artificial intelligence and machine learning help us cover this and overcome this complexity issue. How quickly is the artificial intelligence stopping that activity? Incredibly quickly. So Less than a second? Less than seconds, yeah. So I've been an ethical hacker most of my life. So I, I think I understand the text very well. During a free trial in a hospital here in the UK, we saw that one computer got hit by a piece of banking trojan. So one computer got hit, a nurse clicked on a link, a phishing email, and she got infected by a banking trojan. No big deal. But we saw immediately that the banking children tried to spread around in the whole network, infecting 400 other computers. And that's a nightmare, right? We're talking about people trying to save lives. And they're being stolen, scammed out of their credit card details and their money and whatever else could happen there. And we saw artificial intelligence, who had never seen this attack before, stop it within two seconds. Our AI said, wait a minute, this nurse's computer is never talking to these servers in Iran, in Russia, in China and Germany. And certainly, she never tries to install software on her colleagues' computers. That's what the malware tried to do. So our artificial intelligence said, within two seconds, this is unusual, we better contain this. She could still continue doing her normal business operations, because we know what's normal, right? So that's not going to be impeded. And that was a great case of showing how quickly you can react. Where are most organizations vulnerable? Most organizations are vulnerable because they don't spend enough time on the basics. What I like to call cyber hygiene like doing patching, which I mentioned earlier, or being aware of what's going on. So how are organizations vulnerable? They often don't follow the basics. And again, they get overwhelmed. It's just too much, too many attacks, too many alerts, and too many vulnerabilities left and right. And again, we've been playing catch up and we see a big vulnerability hit the news. We try to patch it quickly, but then another one comes around the week after. Then a novel way of infecting companies, a new spam campaign comes around. So we've always been trying to catch the bad guys. And turning this around again is what really makes a difference. Instead of always trying to be reactive and sitting there and being afraid with the ostrich approach of the next attack that might hit you, turning this around and saying, let's use the AI to do the heavy lifting, to watch you 24-7, because humans also are prone to errors, right? So AI isn't, it always does its job, is pivotal thinking. Can you talk about apathy or maybe ignorance on the employee side and, and how that poses a danger? to organizations? I, I've seen a lot of apathy and even malicious insiders in organizations. So there's definitely a responsibility on this, but it's been very hard in the past, right? If you're not fully trained, how can you as a normal employee distinguish a phishing email, a very well-made phishing email from normal email? So I think what we need to do here is, yes, there's always going to be apathy in the workforce. There's always going to be a plateau of people who are never going to learn or they can't or they're not IT savvy enough. So we have to assume that people will fail, make errors. So we as the people designing systems and software and security need to take that into account and make tools easier to use and make systems more secure by design. So yes, it's true. We don't have enough people. We need to do more in terms of educating and getting pupils in touch with security and stuff like that. 
But again, I think there's a big responsibility on security companies and toolmakers to flip it around and say, let's make the software, the security software, easier to use. And we do this at Darktrace, actually. I'm appreciative that you haven't seen our interface and stuff like that, but it's, it's incredibly visual. We've got 3D visualizations, 2D graphs, and you can pivot around the data really quickly. So it's not just table among table among table. And you got to stop me if I... No, no, keep going. So it's very visual what we do, and it reflects in how we recruit people. And I know your background is in HR, so you might find this interesting. So we have a few quite senior people in my team in Cambridge. I'm hanging out 30 people, as I said there, 30 threat hunters there. A few quite senior people like myself, people with ex-Intel backgrounds, so really knowledgeable ethical hackers. But the vast majority of our juniors are in their early 20s and don't have IT backgrounds at all. And this is interesting because normally when you hire somebody for a security job, they should have 15 years of security background and be cyber ninjas, but that's not going to scale, right? Again, complexity is the big thing here. So we hire these very smart young people who have a PhD in astrophysics, a master's in data science, a bachelor in chemistry. So they are very bright, very quick in adapting to big data, being moved around and fitting around data. And because our solution and many of the other new solutions out there are really visual and easy to understand. We don't need 15 years experience to decipher Kerberos Log 5723. They can have tremendous success. And my juniors, after two or three months working for us, they find their own advanced attackers, their zero-day malware for your more tech-savvy listeners here. So they are attacks that nobody has ever seen before. They find their own nation-state hackers. They might not know exactly every single bit and byte that has been shifted around and done, but they see it and they say, this is really weird, we need to escalate it. And they can flag it to the um, people responsible to do the cleanup job. And this is, for me, amazing. I'm still stunned every day. What does the diversity of your team, as you were describing, their backgrounds are, are not necessarily traditional IT or cybersecurity backgrounds. What does that diversity do to enhance your creativity or innovation as a team? It's incredible. I love my job, um, partially because I've been doing this forever, but partially because of the great team I've got the honor to work with my 30 juniors plus everybody involved. And we have a 50-50 male-female ratio as well in my team in Cambridge. And for your listeners, we also have two female CEOs of Darktrace here. So very big on diversity. And it's incredible. It's a reflecting in the culture. Just having diversity itself doesn't do anything for us. It reflects in the culture, which means we all sit in a big open space office, several monitors in front. And if anybody sees anything, there's no barrier to raise your hand and say, oh, have you seen this? Or everybody's moving over to the neighbors and say, hey, Rob, can I grab you? Have you seen this before? Oh, no, but I know how to deal with this kind of data because I looked at this in my PhD in astrophysics. And then a linguist comes around and says, oh, that's interesting, this phishing email, because you can read out of it that it's written by a non-native speaker. And it's, just, it's not just the diverse skill sets and the gender diversity, but the open culture around it. And we have a few credos at Darktrace in my team, which is ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. There's no stupid question. You can ask the same question 20 times, even to the same person. But even better, ask the same question to five different people because you get different perspectives on it. And this culture, young, bright people, without any entrenched knowledge and you know, fear and anxiety to lose their job or anything like that, is doing amazing work for us. Well, that's so great. And as a leader, it sounds like you take your hands off the wheel and just let them go. Is that hard to do? Or how, how, did, you, how did you learn to do that? <laughs> I don't want to push the cultural stereotypes, but for me, it was hard to do as a German to lose control. <laughs> <laughs> I 
but it's certainly the way to go. It's amazing if you see how your, your team grows, how they go above and beyond what they can do normally and just become more than the sum of the individual parts. And we've hit a place, Dark Trace. I've been here for three and a half years. When I joined, I was employee number 110 or so. Now we're hitting close to 1,000 employees. So when I joined, I had my fingers on all the big customers and all the big deals, and that just doesn't scale anymore. So I had to learn to take a step back instead of going out myself every day now got a team of core consultants, which I'm also mentoring to do the work for me. And they've got a team under them, which they are training mentoring. So you have to work on these scalability effects and structures. Let's talk about governments for a minute. What should governments be doing to protect their citizens, their organizations, pr protect their infrastructure as well? It's very interesting as somebody who's lived in Germany most of his life and now has been living in the UK for three and a half years, but is also working internationally. So I see a lot of different governments and their responses to the cybersecurity landscape and threat. And I think the first thing governments should acknowledge is that it is a big topic. It's not just, you know, something for geeks anymore. It's something that's shaping geopolitics these days. The US president is spending a tremendous amount of time on social media. So the impact of his account being hacked or every one of his tweets can have tremendous outreach and effects out there. And we see that drone strikes are sometimes announced or commented on on social media. So the cyber realm is a thing to stay in, really important. And what governments can do is acknowledge this thing, that, that they have to invest time and money and resources, but also provide guidance, best practices, and regulations to a certain extent. You're alluding to this a little bit, but I want to talk about the threat of a cyber war. And of course, it's possible. Are we in one right now? Are we in one right now? I would absolutely say so. What is a cyber war? Does it mean a war being fought in cyberspace? Does it mean a mingling between the cyber and the physical realm? It doesn't matter how you look at it. We've seen both, in fact, out there. Cyber war between countries is something that's been happening for ages. I don't want to go into specific definitions and stuff like that, but we see a lot of attacks which originate from nation states against other nation states to attack the critical infrastructure of countries to undermine them. We've seen attempts by hacking groups to attack national infrastructure and do physical damage there. There's been a case called Stuxnet, which happened in 2012, which is a Stuxnet, it's the name of the operation, which was a cyber attack against the Iranian nuclear program, the facilities, which set it back for several years. And that's a cyber physical operation from nation state against another nation state. I would call that cyber war. We've recently seen Israel order a drone strike against the hacking HQ of Hamas, like a physical operation against hackers, basically. It's been hotly debated in the cyber realm and amongst security folks. And there's other examples where the US has put out policies years ago saying, if we become the victim of a cyber attack, we will retaliate in physical operations, sending rockets, missiles, and bombs. If we get hacked, they, they hold this option open. So are we going to face a cyber war? I think we're in the middle of it. It's just the extension of everything else we've seen in the world going on for the last 15, 20 years. The 2016 election in the United States was front and center regarding manipulation, foreign manipulation, and uh, using data in a, in a way that could switch opinions. How can the U.S. protect itself from having a foreign entity potentially manipulate an election? I would even open the question up, how can any country protect themselves from trust attacks? I call these things trust attacks, where the trust in data is undermined. Can I still trust the election results? Can I still trust the election not to be meddled with? 
And of course, there's no general answer for this. It always comes down to what we talked about before, governments being diligent, trying to have this trickle down. And I think the US has been very forward thinking recently. And there's been different stages of cyber operations and proactive defense as well. So when the US says we're not just going to sit there and wait for attacks to happen, but we're going to actively reach out to disrupt threat actors out there before they can start attacks against ourselves. I think it's a major thing we see reflected in geopolitics these days. We see right-wing populists rise left, right, and center. Just in the recent EU elections, we've seen interesting trends there. And here in the UK with the Brexit party, and a lot of that is about fake news, is about propaganda, about fake news just doesn't, doesn't just mean lying about things, but it could be omitting parts of the truth or just phrasing things in a certain way so it gives it a different spin. And again, these are trust attacks because it undermines the basic trust in democracy, in media and journalism, for example. So the problem in trust attacks is a big one. And again, I think it all comes back to complexity, right? How can we try to build trust in systems, in nation states and democracy, if everything is built on IT and we can't even properly secure a CCTV camera? What? innovative solutions are you introducing to the marketplace to either secure individuals, secure organizations, secure governments? Talk about those innovations. Instead of trying to predefine attacks, what everybody else is doing out there, saying we've seen this attack before, we have to defend against it. But if a new attack comes around, you've not seen it before, you can't defend yourself against it. So we turn this on its head by something which we've created, which we call the enterprise immune system. It's our Artificial intelligence using unsupervised machine learning to understand what normal means. Like the human immune system, spot deviations. So instead of predefining that, it's identifying weird anomalies so we can jump onto it and stop things before they go bad. So we identify things before they go bad based on the anomalous behavior. And the beautiful thing is, again, it, it reduces complexity and it's not contributing to the complexity problem, but it's, it's killing it, basically. Because instead of sitting in every computer and every network and manually trying to understand with human operator, what does this device do? How can we understand what, what Don's laptop does every day? What's constituting normal? Let all of that be done by the machine learning and the artificial intelligence. And let the attacks be stopped autonomously, even if we've never seen them before. And it's working because it's reducing the complexity needed. And it works even in very complex worlds in any industry vertical. That's part of our success. We don't, we're not just a solution that works for big banks, you know, or for water treatment plants or for internet service providers, because Darktrace relearns every time it goes into a network, it starts to understand what does this device do? What are similar devices? What do the servers normally do? What does the laptop here do? It always relearns based on what we see locally. So no talking to the cloud, no need for like big overarching architecture and the cloud from customer to customer. It's all locally done. So Darktrace understands what's specific to a satellite network, for example or to a smart grid, or to a hedge fund in New York, or to a journalism institution in, in another country. And this is, again, the complexity issue, right? It's very difficult to, with a traditional approach, to try to secure two very different companies, because every network is individual and unique. And that's where Dr. shines, because you just put it in there, it learns for five to seven business days, so it doesn't need months and months to get set up. Just plug it in, it learns for like a week, then it shows you the initial value. It's going to say immediately, there's a botnet that's going to exfiltrate data. There's a leaky firewall. There's some malicious traffic coming in. And look at your sales manager here. He's downloading a lot of internal data from the customer database. And wait a minute, didn't you say he's leaving in two weeks? So we spot insider threat 
quite a lot, which is another very interesting use case for our customers because we talked about apathy in the workforce. We talked about no security awareness, but of course, there's also the opposite where people deliberately try to damage companies and trying to spot that with IT systems, with security systems can be very tough. Would Darktrace have caught Edward Snowden before he had walked away with all of those documents? Edward Snowden was one of the main use cases that our founders from the cyber side of things had in mind, but they wanted to find them in the enterprise. I'm assuming that the hackers, when they see Darktrace or other companies similar, aren't just packing up their their bags and, and retiring. I'm assuming that they're working on innovative solutions too. So what, what does that innovation look like on the hacker end or the, the malicious hacker end? There's various ways how they can do it, how they will do it. And there's prototypes out there. I don't want to give your listeners any ideas, but basically all the building blocks out there, the opportunity is there because we know AI can give you these benefits, scalability, staying undercover and all these things if you apply it. There's open source research out there, code ready to use, open source research projects by academia, universities. And there's the bad guys the, in the triangle who are just looking for new ways to attack people and get more profitable. So all the building blocks are out there. It's just a matter of time until it comes together. And that's why I'm always advising organizations to don't be reactive. Don't wait for the next big paradigm shift to hit or the next big tech wave or next future tech to cripple your company but think about how to improve your security today. That could be adopting AI defenses like Darktrace, for example, instead of sitting there and waiting for the big hammer to come and crush your enterprise. Now, if I think about the next paradigm shift, we don't want to wait for it to happen and crush people, right? I think it's going to be AI-driven cyber attacks. I don't want to do any scaremongering here. I just want to get people thinking about what's going to be the next big thing. And I think just having antivirus, static rules and signatures, it's not going to be enough to work around the next paradigm shift. When you think out five years, or ideally 10 years, what does cybercrime and cybersecurity look like? I think we're still going to see the same kind of attacks we're seeing these days, credit card fraud, phishing waves. But the attack surface will change. If you think about things like 5G, when 5G hits, it's not just going to be humans and machines interacting with each other, but mainly machine-to-machine communication, interconnected vehicles. We saw, I saw a case at Darktrace here last week where we saw a, one of the very big, I can't name the brand, but very big autonomous car companies connecting their car randomly to corporate Wi-Fi, uploading a lot of data. And that was a smart car sending data through corporate Wi-Fi to God knows where. And I have immediately 20 different attack scenarios in mind, how this autonomous car could have been attacked, the update being intercepted, poisons, and all that kind of stuff. So if I think I had 5, 10, 15 years, there's going to be much more complexity, much more diversity in terms of devices, almost like cyber pollution. If I think about a good analogy, right, I look at our oceans and I see all the plastic crap out there and all the bad stuff. And if I look in space, there's so much rubbish out there, so much garbage just floating around. It's polluted. So if you think about IoT and billions and billions of devices being out there, it's going to be a lot of cyber pollution, badly secured devices, stuff that's been installed 10 years ago, never been touched again, never been updated, can't be updated. And opportunistic attackers, clever attackers, are going to make use of that, right? So getting hold of this again. All our discussion today revolves around complexity, I suppose. It's going to be a very complex, very diverse environment. And there's more to it because we see a trend that hopefully is not going to get bigger, which is called the balkanization of the internet, which means the internet as we know today shows signs of splitting up into smaller internets. So Russia is doing exercises to chuck themselves off from the global internet in case there's a proper fully-fledged cyber war like more than we see today. Brazil had similar initiatives before. China is its great 
Firewall of China, which is already restricting traffic in and out of China. So it's going to become a more complex, more diverse, and more split up world. Where do you see data privacy going over the next five to 10 years? There's different models of how privacy is being used and or abused globally. You brought the Chinese example where privacy is not very high valued. It's all about innovation and control. And it's different scales there, right? China tries to govern over a billion people. And they have to use different tools, not endorsing what they're doing at all. I'm just saying there's reasoning behind it. Then we've got the different, the complete opposite on the scale in Europe and Germany, which is extremely privacy conscious to the point where it's sometimes slowing down technological innovations because it's very important to follow all the regulations, all the privacy regulations, and do everything on paper and everything by the books, which can slow down adoption of new technologies and new processes. Sometimes for good things, sometimes there's disadvantages. Sometimes there's advantages, sometimes there's disadvantages to this. Another example I'm seeing is that the US is much more trigger-happy to adopt the cloud, send data to um, some nebulous third party somewhere in the cloud, whereas Europe is much more reluctant to do so, and they much prefer on-prem solutions or data centers in Europe, things like that. So where's privacy going in the next five to 10 years? I don't think there's going to be an agreement or international law on this at all, ever. But different regions will find different regulations that work best for them, as we've seen in the past as well. How are we going to protect ourselves from the mm. use of deep fakes? And maybe you could talk about what deep fakes are mm. before you answer the question. Sure. So fake news and deep fakes is a hot topic. Fake news is what everybody knows about, the omission of facts or the putting facts in a different light that there's a certain spin on it, propaganda basically, right? With new technological means. Deep fakes is applying really advanced technology like deep learning or neural networks to change, for example, video streaming as it happens. And instead of displaying Trump's head in a press conference, they could put Kim Jong-un's head on that body saying the same words and you could barely, if even, discern the difference. So it looks like Kim Jong-un is giving a press conference in the United States talking about cyber war with Iran but it's actually President Trump in the States who's doing that. So deep fakes are a way of using technology to alter truth, alter facts, and in a real-time way. So it's happening as we see it. Now, I would go five steps back and say, is this really what we need to worry about here in at least Western Europe or the Western world? Or if we think about fake news, we don't need deep fakes or fake news to spread around. It's enough to post a picture on Twitter with one or two captions to get a big discussion going that's going to ignite people. So one great example about fake news is why I think we don't need deep fakes or even think about the impact of deep fakes is the case where a few months ago there was a picture on social media of a Native American at a rally facing off a young white teenager wearing a Make America Great Again cap. And it looked like the Native American was being, being threatened by the crowd of youngsters and there was a very smug grin on the face of the youngster. And people went berserk on social media and said, oh my God, it's white supremacy and this poor guy. And that was deliberately pushed by actors on the internet, this kind of echo chamber, to ignite this discussion and divide population even further. And if you looked at it from different perspectives, it was just this one shot that was being pushed, but there were different angles to the story. And I'm not saying this was right or wrong or what's, what's the facts here. I'm just saying that pushing a simple picture, which was taken, not fake at all, from a certain angle is enough to ignite huge discussions and shape the public opinion. So before we try to break our heads about deep fakes and how to counter that, I think we need to get much bigger with truthful journalism, 
discerning fake news from proper news, educating kids on not taking any facts at face value, but always trying to look at different sides of the facts, different opinions. I think that's this ground education is much more important than trying to flabbergast around deep fakes and these things. I'm not saying it's not important to think about these things, but I think we've got other more basic problems. A lot of what we talked about here paints a really kind of pessimistic view of the world. But are you optimistic about the future or how do, what are your feelings on, on the future? I'm incredibly optimistic. I think we live in an amazing world, not just technology, but there's so much reason for optimism. And many things are just pushed to negative echo chambers or just fake news as we discussed. But technology help and support our lives everywhere, be it about cancer research, be it about cybersecurity, like what Darktrace does, preventing security operators from burning out because the software is very interactive and great to use and fun and very visual, or be it sepsis research, where we got machine learning algorithms to early detect sepsis and save people's lives. And there's so many great things. And yes, our discussion was revolving a lot about cybersecurity and the threat actors, but I think it's easy to overlook that we have such great time ahead of us with the internet sharing knowledge left and right all the research going on i'm i'm getting very excited thinking about the next five to 15 years yeah i'm i'm very happy to hear you say that because i feel the same way i, be, I feel very very optimistic about what the future holds for us the world is better than ever and it will continue to improve i fully agree thank you for having this conversation i've really enjoyed it i've learned a lot and max thank you for being a genius thanks a lot i appreciate it Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Thanks also to the amazing team that makes this show possible. Devin McGrath is our production assistant. Ryan Bierbaum is our research and historical consultant. Toby, Tony, Jay, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London make sure the sound and editing are top-notch. To learn how 12 Geniuses can prepare leaders for a rapidly changing business world influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, please go to 12geniuses.com.